Thank you for your singing this morning. I was really excited to find that hymn. Uh, who was that uh, new to? Was that a new hymn to you? That was new to me. Uh, it's occurred to me sometimes in the last weeks and months. I'm pretty sure that we got these hymnals in the summer of 2019. Maybe if I'm wrong about that, you can correct me about that. So we haven't really even had them that long, and there are still some hymns that we're learning, singing for the first time, and there are some really good ones. I was very excited to find that hymn because it matches so well. You can turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, near the end of your Bibles. It matches so well to the theme that we've considered this letter, uh, 1 Thessalonians, under, that God preserves those that he calls by sanctifying them. And you even hear in the language of that hymn, called unto holiness. God calls sinners out of darkness into light. He gives them spiritual life where they had none. And he calls them to live a holy life. And he does this. This is the way that he shepherds us through our lives until we meet him, until Christ returns or until we die and we go to heaven. He does it as he makes us holy. This is how he helps us. First Thessalonians will take for our text this morning, First Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 8. Have you ever excelled at something? Have you ever excelled at something? Maybe if you're in school, you've had someone say that. Wow, you really excel at that. Maybe... Maybe math is your subject in school, or it was, or you are just death on math, and maybe you're more on literature or something like that. Uh, as I look out, maybe there are people here who, are, who excel at being a builder or some kind of project manager, or maybe you're a teacher or something. You really excel with children. You just understand them, and you know how to motivate them. You understand how they think. Maybe you're an analyst of some kind or you're just a technology wizard and you always know to check to see if the computer's plugged in first or something like that. Or you excel at music or medicine or sports or something like that. You just do really well with it. You're really well suited to it. And it's really a blessing if you end up in that kind of career that you're well suited to. Uh, when I was in college, I, for a time, was a music education major. I wanted to be a music teacher. I wanted to teach in a, maybe a Christian school someday. I had a principal instrument that I uh, was required to practice, uh, I don't remember, maybe 10 hours a week, something like that, a couple hours a day. Uh, but then also, if you ever took education, if you studied education classes, you know you had methods classes. And um, maybe if you were studying to be an elementary teacher, you had methods for teaching math and methods for teaching language and things like that. But in music education, our methods classes were often learning new instruments. So I was a college student, 18, 19, 20, uh, fairly uh, f fine at my principal instrument, practicing it a lot, and I was learning to play the flute. I was learning to play the clarinet. I had never touched these instruments in my life. Um, I learned to play viola for a semester in college, percussion, trombone, a couple of very humbling experiences, having to learn a new thing. And the point of these methods classes was not to make us proficient at them. The point was really just to get us to about a middle school level because with most instruments, you're starting kids in fourth or fifth grade when they're finally big enough to hold the thing. So we were just learning in college how to be just good enough to know the basics to get these kids started so that hopefully once they got to seventh and eighth grade, we could pass them off to someone else who really knew how to play the instrument. 
So I wasn't proficient. I wasn't excellent. It was very humbling. Think about the last time you had to learn a new skill, and you're just kind of low man on the totem pole, learning how to make sound, learning how not to sound like a dead cat scratching on the violin. It's really, really a humbling experience to learn these things. But if you think about the kind of practice, I don't remember how many hours I was required to practice for those. Even within my major, you know, there were performance majors. They were required to practice a certain number more hours, uh, maybe, I don't know, 16, 17 hours a week. If you think about people in the Cleveland Orchestra, how many hours have they spent perfecting their craft? People have tried to put numbers on this. Thousands upon thousands of hours of practice to excel, to be the best at what they're doing. And that's largely in comparison with other people, but here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul is writing to a church who has started to face some persecution in Thessalonica over in uh, the, the, the Mediterranean era, area of the world back in the first century. Paul planted a church there, and then he was very soon chased off, persecuted, almost killed, and he's leaving behind believers who live there, and he's very concerned for their faith. He's writing back to them, and here in chapter 4, he kind of makes a turn in the letter, and he's seeking to persuade them and motivate them and really direct them to excel in living, pleasing to God. Of all the things a Christian might excel at, what every Christian needs to excel at is living a life that's pleasing to God. This is, Paul says, God's will. And he's basing this exhortation on everything that has come before. If you look there at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says, Finally then, finally therefore, brethren, there's a, there's a major turn in the letter, but he's, this isn't just kind of in a vacuum. He's been writing about something, and if you haven't been with us, it may help to understand what he's basing this on. He, he had been taken from them, like I mentioned, and he didn't know how they were doing with their faith under pressure. They're facing a lot of opposition. These people had tried to kill the one who had won them to the Lord. And now they're maybe starting to turn against these other converts to the way and saying, you know, why are they acting so strange? Why aren't they worshiping the city gods anymore? You know, I'm going to put some, put some pressure on them. I'm not going to do business with them anymore. And Paul doesn't really know how it's going with them spiritually since he hadn't been able to finish preparing them. There were things he still wanted to share with them to set them up for success. And it got cut short, his time there in Thessalonica. And so here he's exhorting them to live pleasing to God based on the fact that he had actually begun to teach them the truth, the truth which really they had believed. They had believed the gospel, that Jesus Christ had come into the world to save sinners and that they could be right with God through him as they turned from their sin and trusted in Christ. And Paul had started to lay kind of some of the foundation building blocks of what it looks like to live as a Christian after that. And he's appealing to them based on what he had started to teach them and what they had started to practice as he remembered while he was there with them. And if we were just to go back and look at chapter 3 in this letter, he's exhorting them too based on he's just heard a good report. He sent someone to go check on them and to see how they were doing. And Timothy, his co-worker, came back and said... 
You know, these people, they're really doing okay. They, they love you. They're not, they're not turning away from you because you had to leave. They're not abandoning the faith. They're doing all right. And he's excited about this. He's really relieved. He says, we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. And he's exhorting them to excel in a life pleasing to God, especially in view of the fact that he's just mentioned. If you look back at 1 Thessalonians 3, this is what we considered last week, that it's ultimately God who will preserve them and grow them until they depart this earth. Look at chapter 3, verse 11. He commends them to God. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. He wants to come back. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Paul has concern for their soul. He wants to build them up, but who's ultimately in charge? Who's ultimately going to do this work? Paul has confidence that God, he commends them to God to finish what he has begun. And then he says, finally, let's read our text for this morning, chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives you his Holy Spirit to you. When he says we request and exhort you, Paul is making an appeal to their will, to the will of the people in that church. We're sitting here in a church building Of course, we identify the church as a people, not a building. Paul is making an appeal to the will of this church in this place, Thessalonica, to abound in the lifestyle of a Christian. He's writing to convince them to choose to progress in their Christ-like behavior beyond where they were at the moment. And you could say, as we read, you notice he uses this word sanctification, holiness, You could say that this includes the realms of purity, uh, sexual morality, holiness. But then in verses 9 through 12, he turns to love, talks about love. That's another way that they need to excel and grow. And then towards the end of the chapter and into chapter 5, he's talking about understanding the future and hope for the future. He wants them to excel in their hope for the future, too. And then at the end of the 
letter, he's writing about unity among the church and care for one another in the body. These are ways that they need to grow because this is how God will strengthen them against the opposition that is coming against them. But he starts with purity, with holiness. You must pursue, we use the term, progressive sanctification if you will be pleasing to God. You should do this. Excel. Don't stay put. Don't, you know, get complacent. Keep pushing ahead. And in these eight verses, in the time we have today, you see an exhortation to abound in holiness in the first three verses, and then this warning against immorality, the thing that will completely derail holiness. So first, we'll consider this exhortation to abound in holiness. And he's advancing several, several arguments to convince them. And he says, first, this really is a matter of an urgent matter of personal choice. He says, finally then, brothers, what, what remains of what I need to tell you in this letter, therefore? The necessary conclusion of everything I've said, brothers. He's speaking to them as equals before God. He's not emphasizing his apostleship. He's coming alongside of them, motivating them. And he says, we request and exhort you. These are humble and gentle and helpful words. He's not dictating to them like a commander. He's coming alongside them like a concerned friend. We request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus or on behalf of Jesus Christ, their Lord, their master who is in heaven. He's putting in their minds the one who rescues them from their sin and is the Lord of them. Though Paul is gentle here, he does have authority that the Lord wants him to exercise and to put them in mind of. And it's God's authority. And he's saying, we request and exhort you. These are words directed not first at the mind. He's not teaching them anymore. He's encouraging them and trying to engage their will trying to stir their, them to do something. If you think about different kinds of speech, maybe speech 101, you've got informative speeches and you're just trying to educate people, or you've got persuasive speeches and you're trying to engage them to do something. Paul is trying to engage their will. It's a matter of choice. And there's a lesson here that we need to choose to abound in holiness. Even as it must be the Lord who is at work in us, it, we have to engage our wills about it even if we have assurance that God is ultimately the one who will be establishing us in it. Because when you request something of someone, maybe you send in a work request or something, you can get back an answer that's yes or no, right? There's a choice. The point is, holiness won't just happen. You won't just fall into it. Have you ever tried to get into good physical shape and get healthy? It's not just going to happen. You're not just going to stumble into it. You have to engage your will, and then you have to persist. Sanctification is something that God does in a Christian. But it's something which a Christian must set his mind to do as well. And this won't happen merely just because you get older as a Christian. Sometimes we think, oh, I'll, I'll just grow out of that. It's not how it works. And the way the Bible urgently addresses us is in the matter of abounding in holiness. Excuse me, I'm getting ahead of myself. 
Paul is saying it is urgent that we choose this way of life. This is the first and primary application that he makes of how to stay true to the Lord under pressure against your faith. And if I could make this a little more personal to us here, have you ever wondered, even in the last weeks and months, what persecution will look like in our country when it comes? Have you ever thought about that? When it comes, it's going to come hard. Have you considered what it would look like for you to be a Christian when, say, we don't have religious liberty? That's a great blessing that we have in our country. We can't see the future. We don't know exactly what it would, be look, what it would look like. But what we should be urgent about <clears throat> is being prepared in our faith against that. That's what this kind of passage is addressed to. We can't just wait for ourselves to be strong and expect that we can be this little plant that's going to withstand the hurricane, right? The Lord intends to strengthen his people, and there is a path that he will lead them on. Have you thought about this? Scripture urgently addresses us about this, and it says, abound in holiness. God preserves those that he makes his own children by sanctifying them. So when you're concerned about things in our country, no doubt as you are, are you equally concerned about things in your soul? And whether or not your faith will be able to withstand all of that pressure, should everything around it crumble? Have you thought about that? What would happen if you could claw all of those things back and reestablish all the things that you want to see in our country, every shred of decency, every bit of liberty, but lose your own soul? Scripture says that's the most foolish trade-off you could make. The way that God will keep you is by sanctifying you. Are you on that road? It's an urgent matter of personal choice for you. Will you set your mind to it? Will you make plans to abound in holiness for God's glory? Will you pursue the path of sanctification? Each Christian must do that. But holiness isn't just a matter of your will. It's not just whatever you decide or however you decide to be pure. It's not first and foremost about health or something physical, and it's not all up to you. God shows you the realms and the way, and he is the one who puts his Holy Spirit in you to enable you to do it. And Paul goes on to say that this life is really based on some pretty basic and really non-negotiable Christian principles. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, as you receive from us, and that word instruction is in italics, it's not there in the original Greek, but what is he talking about? What you received from us, what Paul and Silas and Timothy the writers of this letter, had taught them in laying a foundation for their Christian life while they were in the city of Thessalonica. These were the fundamental principles that they taught them while they were there. And what did they give to them? What had these people received? How you ought to walk. They instructed them in the manner in which, this word is, in which it was necessary for them to live. Ought. There's a lot of there's a lot of weight behind that word ought, right? You should 
do this. It is necessary, is how this word is translated elsewhere, for you to live. It's non-negotiable, is what Paul's saying. And you receive from us how you ought to walk, and it's implied how you ought to please God. It is necessary to live pleasing to God. That's what he's saying. There is a definite way of life for a Christian that is pleasing to God. And there are definite ways of life among those who claim to be Christians which are displeasing to God. And it's necessary that Christians walk or live pleasing to God. What are we talking about? What did they know about how to live striving to please God? Well, They had probably learned to repent of sin regularly. They had probably learned to pray always and to depend on the Lord in everything. They had learned to be content with whatever circumstance the Lord brought into their lives. They had learned to evangelize the lost around them, to honor God in their relationships, at home, in their marriage, with their kids, with their slaves if they had them. They had learned to to love and to care for one another, to fellowship with God's people, to be diligent in whatever their hands found to do. If you read Paul's letters, you see the kind of commands he's giving people. Work hard. Observe the Lord's table is another one. Preserve unity as a church. These are some of the fundamental components of a Christian lifestyle. And I think we'd all have to agree that these, they're they're non-negotiables. When you see a command in Scripture, you, you must obey. It's from God. And these are all things that Christians should be doing on a regular basis. I think the application here is, though, though it might not be easy, the way to abound in holiness isn't complicated. It's not complicated. It's not something entirely new. It wasn't for the Thessalonians. It's not for us. There's no, there's no secret to success. You know, once you get through a certain number of levels, you can finally get a cheat code. That's not how it works in a Christian life. Have you ever thought something like, you know, I want to be holy, I want to grow, but I just wish it wasn't so hard. I wish I didn't have so many setbacks. I wish it didn't take so long. I wonder if I'm doing something wrong or if there's some secret I'm missing. There have often been people who have been led astray looking for some secret to spiritual success. And Paul's saying it's really just founded on pretty basic, non-negotiable principles. They're not complicated. It's all in the Bible. It's all some of the most basic things you hear. If you come to church, if you read your Bible, repent of sin, read the Bible, pray, See those areas in your life that don't match with what Jesus Christ is like and turn away from those and try to adopt with the Lord's help the way that Christ lived. Be under the word. Be with God's people. These aren't complicated. And perhaps you're in a position where you're trying to do this over years and decades and you feel your weakness to do that under your own willpower. It's not easy because we're weak. But the Lord helps us, doesn't he? He gives us his Holy Spirit. It is the Lord who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. God does both of these things, and we need him to because we wouldn't if it weren't for his work in us. But growth 
is really based on some pretty basic non-negotiable principles. So let me encourage you, go back to the basics. Don't ever outgrow your need to be reminded of some of these most basic principles and to return to them with zeal and to thank the Lord for the grace that he's shown you through them. Don't give up on doing the little things that you know are helpful and obedient to the Lord. The Lord allows things spiritually to operate just as in many things in life on this wise principle of sowing and reaping. If you sow righteousness, you will reap that. If you sow sin, you're going to reap the consequences of that. God will not be mocked. But even as Paul puts them in mind of what he had taught them back at the beginning when he was there with Silas and Timothy, he also acknowledges the way that they're living at the present, and he commends them for that. You see that. Just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. The emphasis is on uh, the actually, like you are now walking. This really is true for you. I'm not correcting you. I'm encouraging you on the way that you're going. He's saying this excelling beyond where you are, this is a natural extension of your ongoing obedience. That's what abounding in holiness is. It's a very natural next step for someone who is already obeying God. They are pleasing God right now by the way that they live. And he simply sets in front of them the most natural next thing for them to do in their current course of life. That's what excelling in living pleasing to God is. It's a natural step. It's as natural, as you might say, for for an excellent employee to get recognized or to get a raise. It's just what's to be expected. And if it doesn't happen, there's something wrong. Someone's overlooking something. Someone's missing something. It's what should be expected. I think there are two ways to apply this here, at least two ways. First, negatively, we will not choose holiness if we are disobeying God. If abounding in holiness is the next step of obedience, if you are disobeying God, you will never do this. If you're a Christian out of fellowship with God, this isn't for you. This exhortation comes to those who are already obeying, already practicing the pursuit of holiness. And Paul is simply setting in front of them the next step. But if you're living in unconfessed sin, or if you're not yielding to the Lord about some matter that he's dealing with you about, or if you're just pursuing worldly things, or you're, you're quenching the Spirit in some way, this isn't the next step for you. What's the next step for you? It's to repent of your sin. And this is a necessary step for you eventually. But what you need to do right now is to repent of sin and turn back to God for forgiveness and cleansing. You need to be made right with God. And God will do that. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is abundant in forgiveness, but you cannot continue in your sin. It's only those who are already obeying that will continue down this path to an abundance of growth in holiness. But even as we say that, that maybe is directed towards believers. But if you're here and you've never trusted in Christ for salvation, 
It's also true that you will never choose holiness if God has not first made you holy. People in the world who don't know Christ, they can seek to improve themselves. Maybe you've heard the phrase, I really just want to better myself. Maybe you've used that phrase, and maybe there's room for that. But that's not sanctification. That's not progress in holiness. If God has not first made you holy inside in a way that only God can. Bettering self, as is kind of a a popular thing to do, it has a semblance of change, maybe. But really, people who are outside of Christ can only ever exchange one uh, master lust for another, right? One way of service to self for another appearance of service to self. That's the only thing an unbeliever can do. So maybe if you just take for an example, somebody's living very unhealthy. This is often the, the, the way that we hear it said. They're, they're a slave to their appetites or some addiction or some destructive habit. And they, they finally realize that it's bad for them. And so they decide on their own, without any work of God in their heart, that they're going to better themselves. And so they, you know, they cut out bad food. They stop smoking. They stop you know, looking at pornography or whatever. And they meet all sorts of success. And their life is much cleaner. And you know, their marriage is fixed in a lot of ways. And a lot of good things happen. And that's, I would say that's the Lord's mercy to allow this principle of sowing and reaping to operate as he's designed it in all of the world to work. That's common grace. And that was maybe the Lord trying to get their attention about their sin, but they didn't see their sin. They just saw the consequences of their sin, and they didn't like the consequences. So they didn't actually turn from their sin. That's not sanctification. That's not holiness. That's just changing the face of what it looks like to love yourself. When you're sloppy and you're a slave to whatever addiction, you loved yourself. And then when you get it together and you better yourself, you still love yourself. You don't love God. It's really a cheap and a fake alternative that the world, the devil, loves to offer because it looks good and it's shiny and it's clean. But it's not true change from the heart. And if you're going to stand before God and God's going to say, come in, my child, When you meet your maker, it can't just be on the outside. Jesus has to be your Lord. You have to have a clean heart, and only God can do that. But when God does wash a person, when God does sanctify a person, when he justifies a person and declares them righteous in his sight, it sets that person free to love God from their heart and to do real good because they love God. It's a, it's a new nature. It's a total new way of life. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, and none of us should be deceived about this. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexual, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And he's writing to those in Corinth, and these are some of the best words in the Bible. What does he say next? Such were some of you. But you were washed. Did you wash yourself? No, you were washed. You were sanctified. 
but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Praise the Lord for that. When God sanctifies you, he qualifies you to inherit the kingdom of God. He makes it natural for you to obey. He makes it possible for you to please him and to abound in holiness. Praise his name. He deserves the credit for that. But not only is this a natural extension of ongoing obedience. In fact, Paul says next, abounding in holiness is not just natural. It is a necessary step in the process of growth. If you kind of take the the skeleton of this sentence, he says, we request and exhort you in verse 1, and then down at the end of verse 1, that you excel still more. We're requesting and exhorting you in order that is the word. This is the exact reason he's encouraging them about this. This is what they need to engage their will about. This is what we need moved to do in our growth. This is what we need to choose to pursue, and that is that you excel still more, that you abound even more from where you're at. If you look back at chapter 3, verse 12, this is actually the same Greek word translated there as abound. May the, who's the actor here? Lord, cause you to increase and abound or excel. Now, what is he encouraging them to do? This is the substance of what he's saying, that you abound still more. There, it's Jesus who's doing it in you. Here, it's the believer who is the actor of the verb, grammatically. And the object is this lifestyle that Paul has instructed them in, the lifestyle that they had adopted and that they had committed themselves to, the Christian lifestyle that's pleasing to God. They needed to keep going. If we return to this illustration of learning an instrument that we started with, what a band teacher might tell a middle school trumpet player or something, if he wants to keep making progress, maybe you heard this, keep working on your scales, right? It's really boring. You play your scales and you get sick of them and you just kind of get complacent with them. But if you're really going to make progress, keep working on your scales. Keep working on those etudes. Teacher who sees a student who's diligent about some of these basics, he's not going to suddenly give that seventh grade trumpet player some advanced technical piece of music, right? That's way beyond his ability that he's never going to be able to really master. He's not going to give him that. That's not really going to help him. What he needs to do is to hone those really simple things that he learned right at the beginning. And maybe when he was you know, in fourth grade, he used to play like this, and his, his elbows were down on his belly, and he's playing like this, and he sounds like a dead duck. And now he's just sitting up like this, but he's not real, he's not real careful about his posture. So that band teacher is going to say, okay, he's going to draw his attention to how he can improve his posture and get more air from his diaphragm and free up his diaphragm and make a more beautiful sound and be able to extend his sound a little bit longer. While maybe he might be able to get get through his scales and the fundamentals just with some mistakes and some sour notes and things, he needs to master them. He needs to get them well in hand. If that middle school trumpet player is going to have any foundation for future success, he can't just transition to doing something totally different, right? He needs to excel at what he's already doing. That's the next step, and it's a necessary step for the future. And the reason 
back into our passage. We're going to come back to that illustration. But the reason it's necessary and not optional for us to excel in our Christian life is because we need the strength that this provides for us in order to withstand the pressure that will come against our faith. Paul sees this down the road. It came to Paul, it's coming to them. And he knows the only way that they're going to be strong enough to withstand it is if they take this step. That's why it's not optional. So in this middle school band classroom, if that seventh grader never learns to master those basics, he will never have success when it comes time to play those very difficult audition excerpts, right? He doesn't have the fundamental skills in place that are going to undergird everything that a professional musician has to do. He has to have that foundation. It's not an option if he's going to be able to withstand the test. The test, And it's the same with a Christian's faith. If we don't take this necessary step of abounding in holiness, of excelling, living pleasing to God, when testing time comes, we won't have the foundation laid for that will still be weak in the fundamentals that undergird everything else that will be required in that time of testing. So, you need to be pursuing holiness now. This isn't just something optional for a Christian that you can take or leave. This isn't just, oh, that's for, that's for serious Christians. That's for pastors. This is addressed to a church in a real place, in a real time, facing real opposition. This is addressed to you. And to me, this is how you will be pleasing to God. And this is how God will strengthen you for when persecution comes. Not by becoming complacent, not by saying, oh, you know, I've been a Christian for long enough. Certainly everything will be fine. Of course, of course I'll be a Christian then. That's self-reliance. That's exactly what the devil would love for Christians to think, that they've arrived, that they don't need to keep going that they don't really need to pay attention to the Bible anymore. Press on. So Paul notes what it is that is so necessary to be doing, that you excel still more. And he goes a step further, and he offers more explanation. In verse 2, For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For you know, or because you have known. He's really just reiterating something he's already instructed them about, calling to their minds, telling them to practice it and persist in it, telling them to to think about what they know and to apply it. What he's saying is that abounding in holiness is really a thoughtful and an obedient application of Bible knowledge. Because you have known. They've learned it. They just need to think about it, and they need to apply it. For you have known what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. What commandments we gave you. Which, which rules we gave you for Christian living. The guidelines for Christian ethics and conduct, purity in marriage, integrity in business, diligence in your work, love towards your neighbors, humility towards rulers, generosity, hatred for sin, mercy, righteousness, peacemaking, 
these, these ethical prescriptions for Christian living that Paul had given them and that he had given them by the Lord Jesus or through the Lord. They didn't just make these up from their own minds. They weren't even issues of Christian standards or matters of that Christians can really actually disagree on. These are guidelines that Paul could point to directly from the words and the ministry of Jesus as to how Christians should and must live. They weren't suggestions. They were commands. And he's urging them to apply their understanding of these in obedience to the Lord. Think about it. Obey it. That's part of what meditation is. I've heard someone commend the, the map method of meditation. This isn't this Eastern stuff where you empty your mind and, you know, really dangerous stuff. This is memorize a passage of Scripture, analyze it, personalize it, M-A-P. Think about what it is. Really get it into your mind such that it's running through your mind. Analyze it. What does it say? What does it mean? And then personalize it. Apply it. Obey it. Abounding in holiness requires thinking about what we've learned from the Bible and obeying it. Not only being hearers of the word, but doers, right? The word shows us, James James writes, like, like a mirror. Someone who hears and doesn't do is like a person who sees himself in a glass and walks away and doesn't do anything about it. You know, you've got a big streak of chocolate from that chocolate chip cookie you snuck or something, and you see it in the mirror, and you walk away, and you've got a big chocolate smear on your face. That's what people who hear the word and then don't practice it are like. So do you think about the word? Do you respond to the word? That's what's required. We need to think and apply and respond to the word in order to grow. But Paul concludes this exhortation to holiness with perhaps the most powerful argument of all in the beginning of verse 3. For this is the will of God. Your sanctification. This is God's desire for every Christian. God wants this. God wants you to do this. This is what the wish of God is. It's what he's been describing and alluding to. And what is it? It's your sanctification, your holiness, the consecration of you. Holiness is, of course, set-apartness, being set apart. Like if you read in the Old Testament, they're, actually we read this morning, they're rebuilding the temple, the the. The priests and the Levites were consecrated. The vessels of the temple were holy. They were set apart for special use, and they were not to be used in a common way. There's even a time when God gives Moses very clear instructions about a certain kind of incense to make to use in the, in the temple or the tabernacle, and he says, no one is allowed to copy this and sell it for common use. It was holy. It was set apart for a very special use because God is holy. very closely connected to this is the idea of separation from sin. Separation from impurity. God is holy. He is set apart. And chiefly, he is set apart from sin. 
Someone who is sinful cannot come near to God. And sin deserves to be judged in hell. That's where God will send all sinners in the end if they don't repent of their sin in life as he is mercifully giving an opportunity now. But here, sanctification, we're not just talking about the the one-time setting apart. We're actually speaking of the process of being continually set apart from sin to God, which is a very direct result of our salvation. Certainly God sanctifies us at salvation. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified. We would say positionally. But then throughout our lives, we, we must increasingly become in practice what God has made true of us in our position, like, like a prince who's maybe hidden at birth, who doesn't know he's royalty and isn't accustomed to acting as such, but he finds out he really is of royal blood and he's the rightful heir to the throne. And then he comes to act in that way and he comes to think of himself in that way and he comes to rule in that way. God intends, God desires and plans and purposes that his people would increasingly become what he has made them in position. God makes his own completely pure before him and he establishes establishes them as such. We read back at the end of chapter 3. But then we must pursue that holiness in our practice, in our lives, with his help. Because he made it true of us and only because he enables us to do so. So this is an exhortation to abound in holiness, that you excel still more. And we'll have to leave the warning that he adds for another time, the warning to refrain from immorality. Sanctification, I'll say this, sanctification touches very directly on sexual morality. This is a primary way that we need to pursue holiness. Sexual sin is the surest way to derail growth in sanctification. And they were facing that. They were living in a godless city. Godlessness in, in, the, in the temple worship, no doubt. They had been saved from that. Maybe they were being solicited with that. And that's increasingly becoming true in our day. May the Lord help us to abstain, to purposefully steer clear of sin in any form, especially that form, so that we may be holy, set apart for his special use. And maybe you're here today saying, okay, I get I need to be holy. I want to be holy. God wants to set me apart for his use. But what does that really mean? What does God set people apart for? Certainly purity from sin as a testament to his holiness and his, his work of sanctification in our heart, but certainly righteousness, good works, doing right things for his glory so that men may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Romans chapter 6, Paul is writing of really the conflict of sin within his body and uh, how the spirit is warring against the flesh, but he's dead to sin. And he writes this in Romans 6 verse 12, Therefore, 
since you're dead to sin and alive with Christ, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting your members, the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. If God has sanctified you in your heart, you are not a slave to sin. It may feel like it, but that's not what's true. Present yourself to God as alive from the dead with Jesus Christ. And your members, every capacity that God has given you, to him as a member, as an instrument to do righteousness. Titus, I believe, makes this even more explicit in another place. Titus chapter 2. Why does God redeem people? Why does he rescue them from darkness and sin into the light? Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. This is how good our God is. He's going around rescuing people from the damnation that they deserve for their sin against an eternal and holy God rescuing them for himself, his treasured possession that he intends to bring home to him in eternity forever. And he leaves them in this world to do good work so that people can see that person and say, wow, what did God do in their heart? That's what God set you apart for. And you need to excel at it. Excel still more. May the Lord help us. May the Lord help us. He calls us, called unto holiness, we say. He called us to do his will that he intends to do in us, but to pursue sanctification. Are you doing that? Is that your heart's desire? I trust it is. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus, you've never been sanctified, even at the first. I'd love to talk to you. The Lord sent his son, Jesus, who was perfect into the world to save sinners who were not perfect so that they could be made right with him. That's the only way to God is through Jesus Christ. There are many, even, even in this community, who try to find another way, and there is no other way but through the perfect, sinless son of God, Jesus Christ. You must turn from your sin and trust in him for salvation. May the Lord do that today. Let's pray. Our Father, this is an urgent matter. This is the way that you intend to strengthen us against the opposition that is certainly coming against our faith. We don't know what it will look like, but we know that all those who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, and we are not exempt from that, Lord. I pray that you would plant this desire deep in our hearts, those who know you and have trusted in Christ, to excel still more, to abound beyond where we are so that we can be further strengthened and we can help others along. Lord, you're so good to us to give us so many helps on our way to glory. Help us to heed you, to humble ourselves before you. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that you give to us, who ministers the word to us. I pray that we would 
heed his promptings today, you would produce fruit in our lives for your glory. We love you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.